You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. So for me, this is a tough one because it really merges together multiple personal narratives. That's They came together and I discovered this research area and kind of grew into it over quite a long period of time. So um, I would say really there are kind of two main themes. And the first goes back to my adolescence, basically, when my mom was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and given a finite period of time to live, a number of years. And that really uh, created havoc in my family life. And at the time, her oncologist had been um, recommending self-help books to her. So I was the one that ended up reading a lot of those. And through that, discovered mindfulness-based interventions for stress and pain management. And I kind of leaned on that literature quite a bit as a teenager to get me through those turbulent years. And that really spurred my interest in psychology. And I went on to get a degree in biopsychology. So I was fascinated by the mind-body connection. um, And it kind of went forward from there. Um, So now, as a behavioral scientist, I would say that was a lot about cognitive training and emotion regulation and how they intersect. That's all the scientific jargon. But those were really kind of the the formative processes of my teens and early 20s. Um, So that was one, that's one narrative that kind of follows along. And then from a young age, I always just had a strong mathematical aptitude. And um, as a young, young adult, I was working in Silicon Valley for a number of years and doing, um, taking classes in computer science and thought I was going to go in that direction. And right around that time is when my mom Um, She had been in remission for a period of years, and then her cancer kind of came back. And within that year, she died, and I was her primary caretaker for most of that time. And after, during and after that process, after she passed, I just kind of did a major life reevaluation and said, how can I combine, (laughs) you know, the skill set that I now have with something that's more meaningful and related to mental health? And so... I ended up um, going back for a PhD in quantitative psychology, so it kind of merged those two domains, but I was working on this large um, meditation study. And eventually I pivoted and got involved in research on aging, Um, but it really, these kind of themes of mortality and end-of-life processes and cognition and depression and stress and mental health, like they really just kind of all came together for me at that point. Um, And that's been the area I've been working in ever since. So, That is Dr. Stephen Aschel, an assistant professor of human development and family studies and a quantitative psychologist at CSU. In this episode, Aschel describes the relationship between depression and cognitive decline and how data science methods can be used to determine predictors of cognitive changes. We also briefly discuss the effects of air pollution and lead exposure on cognitive differences in development. Tune in to learn what Aishel's research reveals about three key predictors of depression risk following middle age, including social isolation, poor health, and mobility issues. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. Stephen, thank you for being here. 
Thanks for inviting me to speak with you. I'm so excited to have you come in. So tell me a little bit about your present research agenda that you have here at CSU. Well, I would say it's it's kind of multi-pronged, but the two main research areas currently, um, the, the catchwords would be cognitive epidemiology and then cognition depression dynamics. Each one is, they overlap, but they're also co- distinct fields. So cognitive epidemiology is really looking at how differences in mental abilities and in my work, changes over time, age-related changes in mental abilities, how those predict other health outcomes and usually it's mortality risk. So this field kind of, some of the early research came about in the early 1900s when it was discovered that the average IQ of a population also was associated with the average length of life of that population. And then in the 70s, um, discussions started to occur where people were saying, well, declines in some cognitive abilities are going to be more indicative of impending death than declines in other cognitive abilities. And so my research has just kind of expanded on, on that. And I could go into more depth, but I won't for the moment. Yeah. And then the other area is cognition depression dynamics. So again, these are processes that have been of interest to psychologists kind of from the formation of psychology, you know, affect, our emotional experience on the one hand, and intelligence and memory and cognitive ability on the other, and then how they intersect. And so those relationships are, can be very complex and they're very hard to pull apart. So we spend a lot of time looking at different um, temporal or time-based signatures um, between changes in one process and changes in the other to kind of tease out what's going on with each. And that's particularly relevant for older adults because, of course, cognitive impairment, dementia, cognitive incline, and also depression risk are really key adverse health outcomes for people over the age of, well, really 50, but 65. So, yeah, let's let's tease into that a little bit more. What what is a little bit more of the relationship between cognition and depression? And I know you've talked about a chicken or the egg situation before that one funnels into the other or maybe it's vice versa. Yeah. So as I mentioned, it's quite complex. So I guess the first thing I should say is that these associations, I, I work mainly with data from middle age and older adults. But these associations go back to childhood experiences often that just carry through the life course. Um, So you can kind of look at it from different angles. So you could look at it as depression as a precursor to changes in cognition. So one way to think about that would be to say, well, um, again, if you go back and take a lifespan perspective and say people who had adverse childhood experiences, they're more prone to elevated depression risk. That in turn can feed um, maladaptive coping strategies such as binge eating or reduced physical activity, um, things like that, that then put people at risk for diabetes and other vascular problems. And it turns out that diabetes and vascular issues are often the drivers of mental decline or cognitive declines or early cognitive decline. Um, So that kind of puts depression first. Um, A more kind of biochemical version of that would be that people who have long-term elevated depression, depressive symptoms and stress response um, tend to have elevated cortisol levels and that can change your brain biochemistry and that in turn can lead to atrophy of your hippocampus and memory problems and things like that. So the NIH has kind of pumped a lot of um, 
money into trying to understand pathways where long-term depression leads to cognitive decline. Um, however, you can also kind of flip that and look at um, differences in uh, cognitive abilities and changes in cognitive abilities as related to depression risk. And there are a bunch of pathways that are interesting there too. So um, one would just be, you know, as older adults become aware of their own cognitive decline, that's inherently depressing, right? I mean, yeah. we, none of us want to experience that. It's terrifying. Yeah. Um, another way to think about it would be that if we're experiencing cognitive decline, probably that interferes with our interpersonal relations, or it can. It can interfere with our mobility, our ability to complete tasks that we need to do just to get through everyday life. Um, and that feeds into issues with independence and problems with independence. And that's also a cause for depression. Yeah. Um, another way to think about it is that if you have a stressful life experience and, you know, we all have those at some you know, multiple stressful life experiences, if we live long enough, um, how we deal with those is closely related to um, our cognitive functioning. So how do we deal with novel problems that we're facing for the first time? Um, you know, that's just the straight, can I fix this kind of direct, do we have the mental abilities to kind of deal with it? But then also, how do we appraise those situations? Is it really that bad? Are we making more, like how do we kind of think of, about things that maybe we can't really change? Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of cognitive entry points where you can place cognition before depression. And then I would say, finally, there are things that affect both kind of simultaneously. So if you have sleep disturbances or bereavement or things like that, usually those things impact both um, your depression risk and your cognitive functioning. So they're really hard to tease apart. And especially in older adults, um, usually you find um, problems with cognition and elevated depression risk or comorbid. Um, so one of the things that we do is we we build these temporal or dynamic models to try and understand kind of patterns of changes in each one to see what might be a precursor to the other. Um, and they're not mutually exclusive. You can have a bunch of things going on at the same time. Yeah. So yeah, it's complex. Yeah. You can see why the NIH pumps money into this. <laughs> when you explain yeah. it that way, you totally can. So you take this data science approach to looking at this problem. And so I want to talk about that a little bit in terms of what does a data science approach bring to this question that a typical psychologist might not have? Well, I wouldn't underestimate typical psychologists. Of course not. Um, they're you know, so valuable. <laughs> both in terms of, you know, the ones who, who work in a clinical setting and, and provide, you know, talk therapy, if you will, um, but also research psychologists. But no, I think there's um, a lot of appreciation for statistical methodology in the behavioral sciences. And it's expanded a lot. Um, so I think <laughs> this, there, there are multi, multiple entry points to answering this question, but I think um, in our work, a, a key feature is lo the longitudinal aspect. Yeah. Um, so longitudinal data are very difficult to collect um, and repeated measures data. But what those allow us to do is um, to start to, understand temporal associations between processes and developmental processes over time. Why is that important? Well, as a scientist, we always want to look for causal associations. But if you want to be able to, you know, effectively 
assert a causal connection between processes, you really need ex an experimentally controlled study. Mm -hmm. And in the real world, in real people's lives, and with processes that, you know, you don't want to say, hey, you need to smoke for 20 years, and this other person or this other group of people, they're not going to smoke for 20 years, and then looks like the different. No, that's completely unethical. We wouldn't do that. Um, so we're left with these observational studies. And one of the key criteria for inferring um, causality is to, uh, is to establish temporal precedence. So it's a, it's a necessary but not sufficient condition for, for establishing causality. So if we have these repeated measures, we can, we can begin to look at those temporal associations as a step toward understanding causal mechanisms between things. So that's, um, that's one key thing that I feel like a data scientific and especially a longitudinal data scientific orientation brings to the table. Yeah. Um, shall I go on? <laughs> Please. Yes. I'm interested. I'm interested. So, <laughs> okay. So the, the other, um, the other thing that we've, been using a lot uh, in our lab or is this machine learning approach called random forest analysis and in basic stats if you've been fortunate enough to have one or two statistics classes to kind of shape thinking about things I know it's probably painful when you first take them but they're very powerful tools but they also have some real limitations so if you've ever taken a course in in multiple regression you've come across the terms uh, predictors and outcomes or dependent variables and independent variables. Maybe you've heard about interactions. Um, those are how variables either amplify or attenuate the effects of each other on, on a given outcome. Um, so when you have a lot of predictors that you're trying to kind of understand um, the relative strength of effect on your outcome for, uh, you can't just throw them all into one model and hope everything will be will just turn out okay. Yeah. And a key reason for that is that they have a lot of overlapping influence that can be difficult to kind of tease apart. Um, and also they may interact with each other in complex ways. And if, if you were to, ha to model all of those interactions directly, you'd basically, you know, see smoke coming out of your computer. But <laughs> usually um, you need a lot of observations to be able to do that successfully, but also even with a lot of observations, there are just too many possible combinations. Yeah. So random forest analysis is special in that, um, and these, well, recursive regression models, um, in that it is able to account for all of the different types of complex interactions that variables have with each other in assigning predictive importance to your outcome. So it kind of, I guess you could look at it kind of like as a filtration system to identify for us key risk and protective factors for these outcomes that we're interested in. But when I say key, it, it accounts for all of their potential complex interactions with other variables in that, in that model. Yeah. So that's yeah. the strength of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really fascinating. It takes me back to um, my college days, I know I shared with you, I was a genetic student in undergrad mm. and you said that some of these techniques that you use are kind of from that field they developed there. Yeah. And so I'm thinking of, you know, every time we did an experiment in a genetics lab, the result had to be statistically significant. Uh -huh. And that's just a base of science. Like your results have to be st statistically significant in order for them to actually, you know, be something reportable. And so I'm thinking of, you know, all the, 
genetic networks that we had to study. And when you're thinking of a disease, which gene is responsible for this disease? Well, it's not usually one because those are really easy to decide, but it's usually interactions of many, many genes at once. And so if you try to connect all of those in a visual way, it's just like, like you're saying smoke coming out of your computer. It's like a network that like just goes over and over crossing each other over and over again. And so what I see the importance of the work that you're doing is really cutting through all of that noise in a very mathematical kind of way. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think, um, I mean, there are a few different issues that you bring up. The idea of statistical significance is actually a a tricky one. Yeah. um, Because, you know, we have this idea that your p-value needs to be, you know, 0.05 or lower for something to matter, and that's patently false. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there are much more nuanced ways of thinking about that. But beyond that, some of these machine learning methods, like this particular one, it's not really going to give you a p-value. It's going to give you a rank order yeah. of what predictors to look at. And no one really understands at a human level, like the under the underlying model, you know, the machine has that. It does actually build a model. It builds a forest of associations of nested associations. Um, but to interpret that as a human is next to impossible. So it does, you know, at the end of that, it gives us an idea of like, oh, you really should be focusing on these three things. They're carrying most of the story here, and that's great because it saves us time and money and really allows us to pinpoint things that matter. On the other hand, we do need these more model-based approaches and human-driven approaches rather than just machine and data-driven approaches to really get at a more meaningful interpretation of that story and, and how, to, how to grapple with some of those associations. Yeah, but I think a couple things in, in all of what you're describing that's important to note is going back to my comment about the typical psychologist, I'm assuming it's the typical psychologist who is conducting these observational studies that you are now looking through in mass to try to find patterns. Well, I mean, that's a really good question. And that's another assumption that I'm happy to 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 break because these are not typical people at all, let alone the (laughs) psychologists. I mean, they're really, um, these big data studies are quite um, intensive and like we've been working on one, um, the Survey for Health, Aging and Retirement in Europe. It spans, well, last I looked, it was 28 countries, but I think they're up to 31 now. And, you know, they have people in all of these different countries that are responsible for collecting this information. It's maybe 250,000 European, middle-aged and older European adults now, and they've have tried to harmonize their measures with these other big population studies. And it's, it's a whole team of people with different um, areas of expertise on data collection, data storage, yeah. making the data available, analyzing the data, let alone all the different specializations. Um, yeah. So no, it's, it is definitely, um, we definitely are leveraging the, the team science model these days, at least in terms of bringing the data in. And then, you know, we sit in our boiler room and crunch the numbers and write our stories, but really it relies on entire yeah. teams of experts at this point. I wonder if there is a very simplistic example that we can take from the basic statistics class, like Stats 101, and talk about how it turns from that basic question into something that you study. Yeah, so I think um, just to speak to, I mean, there's there are a lot of different things, a lot of different purposes that um, statistical tools serve. Yeah. So one of those purposes is dimensionality reduction. So just trying to understand, like, and this kind of started with research on intelligence. Like, okay, you have um, 
intelligence, the idea was there's just this one overarching intellectual capacity, intelligence capacity. And we measure it in different ways. Those are called indicators, like how you do on your, your vocabulary test versus how you do on your math test versus, and then that gets into this, well, are there different dimensions of intelligence? And it's been very difficult to just get it down to one dimension. So you can also think about that in terms of cognitive abilities. There's not just cognition, even with memory, you know, we have multiple types of, of memory. You know, you have short-term memory, long-term memory, episodic memory, retrospective memory, verbal memory, visual memory, um, and those all intersect. So um, how we understand the dimensionality of these processes is one thing that um, I think a more advanced statistical training gives you some insight to. Yeah. Um, but then also kind of at a more basic, to me this isn't basic, but we talked about interactions earlier, like how things um, interact with each other to influence a result. Yeah. So when I'm teaching statistics, even at the graduate level, interactions can be very tricky for students to understand initially, even, you know, that's like stats too. Yeah. <laughs> um, and as an example, think about cognition and your social isolation actually interact to influence depression risk. So if you're starting to have cognitive impairment, that's going to affect your, your social relations. And if those are going awry, then that may lead to greater depression risk. Similarly, if you're socially isolated, you're less cognitively stimulated, and that can also lead to elevated depression risk. So that's just one inter type of interaction. And when we're teaching kind of stats too, in this case, um, just interpreting that um, is tricky. Yeah. But now imagine that you have a hundred different predictors and they're all interacting not only with each other, but with themselves over time. And then also um, not in just two way interactions, but three, four, potentially five or six way interactions, um, which are not really human interpretable. That's where machine learning gets us, right? We can start to kind of go into that area. So. So I'm using, you know, trying to use basic descriptors to understand what it is that you spend your time looking at all day. If you had to put a put a cap on it and describe like some of the recent studies that you've done using some of these methods, what would be that that answer? So um, one of the most recent recent paper submissions for us was a study of cognitive reserve. So brain scans of older adults that show evidence of lesions, usually white matter hyperintensities, what we refer them to, so white matter lesions, um, and who also may have problems with memory. Um, some of the adverse effects of those brain lesions on observed behavior, um, the idea is that they can be offset or attenuated by skills and abilities that people have that are well rehearsed and that they retain or that are conserved, basically, yeah. reserved, cognitive reserve. So they're cognitive compensatory factors. So even though you may have evidence of brain damage, um, you're still functioning as a normal adult because you have these well-rehearsed skills, you have a high level of learning. And yeah. so it's kind of trying to understand what are these compensatory factors that can um, aid in that. So this particular study was um, a new survey of these factors that support cognitive reserve and it has a retrospective component so it asks people to kind of look back at their childhood and things they were doing then where you know were you playing chess were you involved in clubs or sports how close were you with your family um, things like that and then similar processes in adulthood 
And it's also one of the few um, surveys of cognitive reserve to actually include relational components, which we know are really important as well. Um, so that is one that that involved what we, uh, a technique called factor analysis. Um, it's a very well established technique. It's been in, used in psychology for quite a long time. Um, in another paper, we're building these trajectory models of changes in cognition and people's functional ability. Um, that's for the health and retirement study. Um, so one issue with a lot of these big population studies is they have to obtain information by phone. So a lot of the cognitive measures are very simplistic um, because they, you know, I'm going to tell you 10 words and then we're going to talk for 20 minutes and how many of those 10 words do you still remember after 20 minutes? That's very different yeah. than some of these more focused cognitive studies. So what we've done there is we've gone in and tried to identify cognitive measures that were introduced later that are a bit more sophisticated and, um, and look at those uh, using these longitudinal trajectory modeling approaches. So those are kind of the two most current examples, yeah. plenty others. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. So the long-term outcome of research like what you do is, I'm, again, I'm just guessing, but please center me back in, is early detection of different measures of cognitive decline, um, coming up with more cost-effective interventions for how to attack the problem earlier. Yeah, Maybe? I think um, I'm, uh, I ask myself this question all the time as well. <laughs> what am I doing? What am I doing? <laughs> so why am I, why am I spending all of this time and energy on, on machine learning of all these data sets? So I think part of um, what our work has done is, is really point to the importance of assessing cognitive measures as well as other health measures because they carry information that might not just be found in you know heart rate variability or blood pressure or something like that so um, one of my early studies that has received some attention showed that uh, differences or changes um, in adults processing speed information processing speed is nearly as strongly predictive as their tobacco smoking history for predicting mortality risk well why would that be well, that's because that information, or rather your ability to process information, um, that depends on cerebrovascular function. It could be related to early life pollution exposure, such as like to lead. Um, yeah. It could be <laughs> related to a whole bunch of different things, but it's captured in that one particular measure. So it's a very good marker um, for impending mortality risk. Yeah. Um, you know, who knew? Uh, some people knew, but it's not, most people choose, don't look at cognition in that way. Right. Um, so that's one aspect is kind of how, what do these cognitive indicators tell us about other health processes? And that's the cognitive epidemiology part. How can they be incorporated into basic screening exams when you're middle age and you go in? Should, can we take, can we afford an extra few minutes for someone just to kind of do a quick speed check? and then follow up on that a few years later and to look for declines in speed because that's a very telling measure. Um, and then the depression risk one is also a big one because um, actually our, our most recent papers show that the three um, key predictors for depression were uh, social isolation, people's overall symptoms of poor health, and then mobility issues. So that got us thinking, well, in a clinical setting, we should really be screening you know, these quick quick screens, how hard is it to ask people about if they feel socially isolated or not? 
Um, so I've been working with a clinician down at um, Colorado Springs on that. And when I went in for my last medical check, I noticed that they actually screen me for depression, which is the first time that's ever happened. Wow. So I was like, okay, they're already doing this. This is good. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is just a routine check. Yeah. So there are kind of implications for things like that. But I think where we really want to go with it at this point is more targeted. Um, I don't really like that word targeted, but and I'm not that keen on the word intervention either, but that is kind of where we're going. Targeted prevention, intervention strategies to help people that aren't just like, let's look across everyone in a population. Let's just lump everyone in the same, you know, information blender and see what matters. Where we're really trying to get to now is like, you know, everyone is an individual first and foremost, but, you know, just statistically speaking, we can look in subgroupings and figure out what really probably matters most within that subgrouping and what's more likely to be effective for them. So that's really where we're going with it at this point. So tell us a little bit, kind of, again, cap this conversation. What are some directions you want to take your lab in the future? So I think um, I mentioned early on that uh, my entry point into psychological research was kind of mindfulness-based stress reduction and kind of this idea of mind over matter. And I had the good fortune to work on a really large study of intensive meditation practices, my first real research experience. Um, and I came out of that feeling that environmental and social factors were potentially more important in terms of our, they influence our cognitive abilities. So currently we're kind of um, trying to incorporate more of these contextual environmental factors into our work. And one of those is a proposal I recently put out and was funded and grateful for that uh, to look at the effects of air pollution on cognitive differences and cognitive declines, um, probably also early childhood lead exposure. So we have a whole uh, wealth of information there to look at. Um, that isn't my distinct focus, of course. Um, I kind of am a bridge, a bridging person, uh, both in terms of methodology and aging research, but also even within aging research, I, I, I probably would get bored if I just focused too closely on one thing, but that really is where this direction is going currently is to start incorporating these contextual environmental factors and looking at cognitive decline and change as people, um, age. Yeah. And that was a center for healthy aging pilot grant. Oh yeah. 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 That's a big deal. Our... Yep. Uh, interdisciplinary research into aging challenges in reach in reach pilot yep. grants. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Now I just have to make sure I can get these data in reach. I'm very, uh, <laughs> <laughs> people's address information, linking yes. that it's a, it's a lot of work to do. It's a lot of busy work. I bet. I bet. So, yeah. That's very fascinating. Super cool. So last question that I am asking every guest who comes on the show this, this season can you identify a major challenge in your field that you believe must be met in order to realize real increases in health span or healthy aging? That to me is really easy to answer and I think, um, but difficult to implement. And I think we really need true lifespan approaches at this point. So often we have information from small sample studies of children. We may have information from large sample studies of older adults. But there aren't that many studies with good information about middle-aged persons because we're all too busy with, you know, families or careers to be bothered to participate in these studies. Um, I'm guilty of that myself. Um, so that's a part of it. But also it's just, you know, it's, it's expensive and difficult to track any given person across 
a lifespan. But I think a lot of these, um, a lot of the factors that go into um, early, early cognitive decline or early onset of cognitive decline, elevated depression risk, things like that, those happen well before what we refer to as old age or you know yep. retirement age, however you want to put it. So um, I really think we need more information about middle age adults and to be able to kind of track progress over time and um, a more nuanced understanding of the temporal dynamics of how these things unfold um, across the lifespan. Yeah. I have no plugs. I just want to give a shout out to Human Development and Family Studies Department and the great work that my colleagues are doing in that department. I'm very appreciative to be here and working with such excellent um, academics and just people generally. And thank the Center for Healthy Aging and thanks for this interview. Yeah, thank you so much. This was really, really fun. I feel like we took this huge topic and we talked about it in a pretty, pretty concise way. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that because I can definitely ramble about it at times. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so. and I, I can definitely ask rambling questions too. So we're one in the same in that sense. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.